Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to the second part of this epic bonus episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast where myself and my childhood friend Chris Dow, you wanna grow big, and my adulthood friend Minty Booth, wear a helmet of any type are celebrating our all-encompassing love of video games. So, last week you heard the first of our honourable mentions, the games that didn't quite make it onto our lists for one reason or another, uh, but that we still wanted to find time and space to celebrate. Some big hits, like Call of Duty 2, Pokemon Sapphire, Conker's Bad Fur Day, some lesser-known gems like Virginia, Darius Burst and Bloons, and the truly unexpected games like... Joe Nalomi's Rugby, Barnstorming, and Sordigo. And now we bring you the remaining five games from each of our top ten honourable mentions, kicking off with Minty Booth. My next honourable mention is a game called Bunny, parentheses, when we first met. Wow. I bet you can beat Bunny when we first met in about half an hour, but I wouldn't know because... (laughs) I played it on the judderiest laptop the world has ever seen. <laughs> I think Bunny, when we first met, is a bit like a farming sim, but sort of uh, castrated. <laughs> You're planting trees and crops and all the rest of it, like making buildings and getting resources. But there's no one there to, to there's no one there to bump uglies with. In, instead of like yeah, trying to trying to woo different villagers, you've got ephemeral characters who you vaguely know and enjoy the company of spouting out cryptic clues to progress the game like i loved it when we would hold hands in the cherry forest there's no quest markers there's no menu just just an offhand comment that pointed you towards planting an entire fucking forest of cherry trees (laughs) to make that lady bunny smile i never beat it because it was such such a taxing game on my old computer that i'd be lucky to crack out a frame every two or three minutes but (laughs) it kind of worked really it was just a really serene gentle and relaxing game that didn't hold your hand didn't didn't push your quest log in your face with any sense of urgency because because there wasn't one you just planted things and Every now and then, somebody might come over and whisper something like, I really love the sawmill, (laughs) or whatever memory they fancy bringing up. Just really nice, gentle game, Bunny, when we first met. That's lovely. I've never never heard of it, but that does sound really, really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, goodness. Chris. WWF Smackdown, just bring it. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, wrestling, waste of fucking time. (laughs) But wrestling games... Also a waste of time. <laughs> but the creator wrestler mode inside wrestling oh, yeah, games, no point. fucking love it. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Like the, the PS2 was the best era for wrestling games, I think. And I know that some people have very fond memories of whichever wrestling games were on the PlayStation 1 or the N64. But the added grunt of the PS2 meant that the horrendous creations that you'd make in creator wrestler mode could be that much sillier that much wonkier, that much dumber. And the core gameplay really didn't change very much from game to game or even generation to generation, to be honest. But there were more match types, I guess. There was grander story modes, whatever. But all I really cared about was making my sinewy version of Colonel Sanders retain (laughs) his title belt in a Hell in a Cell match versus a misshapen Sonic the Hedgehog. Or 
against an eight foot tall cat man <laughs> or a stumpy woman with calves that look like table tennis bats. <laughs> like Smackdown is a sports game for those that don't care about sports or a fighting game for those that don't care about fighting games. And it's not a good game. None of them were good games because matches could be tedious. The controls were loose as all hell. Loading times were terrible. This was the first entry on the PS2. And at that time, three or four created characters would fill an entire PS2 memory card. <laughs> Incredible. Like, which, which is insane. But it was such a good time to create something, no matter how stupid it was, and then be able to see it in a game. Like it, it stimulated that same kind of bit of my brain that made click and play so fun when I was yeah. a kid. It was like, I've made something and now now I can make it move around and walk. And in this case, it was, you know, just a, a weirdly shapen version of Woody from Toy Story or whatever I might have put together <laughs> using the limited assets. So yeah, loved it. <laughs> Brilliant. So we're staying 128-bit for my one and we're back on the GameCube and it is the original Splinter Cell. Hmm. Uh, my introduction to this was in the form of a, uh, a well, a, just a very rare demo disc circulation that happened for the GameCube. Like, that was a thing that just didn't happen. But Nintendo Official Magazine just slapped it on the cover. And it was a demo for Splinter Cell. That was the only thing on there. It was just the first mission of the game, I think, which, you know, let you use a good sampling of the, of the tech, uh, the weapons, gadgets that Sam Fisher has in his belt. And it was... Absolutely brilliant. It was incredibly satisfying, hiding around corners or like doing the splits on the ceiling carefully, sniping out the light bulbs with your silenced pistol, then putting your night vision goggles on and feeling like a ghost. I mean, it played really, really well. And it was the game that weirdly made me really want to get a Game Boy Advance SP because there was a functionality with the game where if you linked the GameCube up to a Game Boy Advance, then you could see your map on the Game Boy, uh, on the game Boy screen. And, well, the idea of having an SP with its backlight just sat propped up with that extra information felt very, very cool. And it wasn't something that I could really do on my unbacklit Game Boy Advance because I would have had to have drawn the curtains to sort of see where my map was after I'd drawn them shut to to, to contain the darkness and the mood. It it, 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 it wouldn't work. I, I never did get a Game Boy Advance SP and, and thus I never actually used that feature, which which is is, is a shame. Now, we know I love a stealth game, and it's it's cool that Thief and Deus Ex, uh, those games by Looking Glass, were cited as a direct reference for Splinter Cell when they were making that, and that shows like a good lineage there. Now, the thing, uh, well, the thing about this game and why it didn't make it onto the list is that well, I can't remember if I played it beyond the demo. <laughs> <laughs> I know that I played the second and third Splinter Cell games on the PC, which were Pandora Tomorrow and Chaos Theory, and they were great. But I remember them being a bit more action heavy than what I wanted. I want my stealth games, you know, I want to be able to complete the game without firing my gun at all. I mean, to be honest, it's very possible you could do that. I, I really don't know. But the, the experience of playing the games sort of blurred in my memory. So even though I think it's a great game, or any of the three games in that first bit of the series you know the experience isn't as defined in my memory as, as so many other games on my list uh, despite it being really really good and you know exactly what it was exactly what i wanted uh, but then to be honest like i think i just got everything i wanted from that demo that's all i wanted to be honest i just wanted to be able to shoot a light out put my night vision on feel like a ghost <laughs> i will say it was incredibly disappointing when they attempted to port chaos theory to the ds 
Oh boy. Almost as disappointing as when they then tried to port it to the 3DS. <laughs> uh, I mean, they were a, a, just a real damp squib, which is a shame, as that would have been just a really fun experience to have in handheld. But yeah, I don't know. Perhaps I'll revisit the games on Steam Deck uh, when I get that. That could be quite fun, actually. And apparently there is a Splinter Cell VR game in development for Oculus. So that could be, well, that could be very, very cool. We'll see. We'll see. But yeah, Splinter Cell is a great series. And I, you know, it's nice that like the Tom Clancy, you know, wider series has had so much attention uh, and obviously a lot of money thrown at it. But inevitably, all that money is just being channeled into making online multiplayer shit, which is fine. And people love that. Obviously, more people love that. Hence why they're doing it. (laughs) But (laughs) it's a shame that they're not, you know, refocusing on the single player experience for somebody in their mid 30s. Yeah. Minty, back to you. Okay. Next up for me today is Creeper World. (laughs) Creeper World is cool. (laughs) it's it's a resource management game uh, you're in a hostile environment and and you you're sort of setting out um different like collection pylons and all the rest of it that sort of spread out from your base so you're grabbing all the resources from the surface of whatever planet you're on you're building up your technology you're adding them to each relay it's like you're basically trying to cover the entire map in like a web of these um, these resource collectors with the goal of getting to building enough of these relays to get to three energy crystals to power up your base so it can fly to the next level. Mm. But it's not as simple as that. Mm. You've got the creepers to contend with, Ooh. which is basically like um, evil juice that fills up the map. And if it touches your units, uh, boom, it destroys them. I don't want evil juice on my unit. <laughs> <laughs> and with the uh, with the with the contours of the map, that offers a, a, a neat little puzzle, puzzly elements. Like, do you take the long way around a, a canyon, or do you build a fortified bridge with weapons on either side to keep the creep at bay and risk the things that you build at the bottom of the canyon getting destroyed if you get overwhelmed? The choice is yours. It's it's a really terrifying game, actually. It's not dependent on things like jump scares or monsters or any silly bullshit like that. The creep itself is just like it's it's just it's just mean squash, but it's <laughs> relentless. It's 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 nearly unstoppable. And once the klaxon goes off to tell you the creepers are coming, it's like somebody sticking a wooden spoon up your ass and giving your bowels a stir. Oh my! The good thing about uh, these these sort of, these small little franchises was back in the day because anybody had a computer and anybody could um, make their own levels they started to release user-generated content in sort of official level packs which was really cool so as well as having these big um, planet-sized exploration missions you also got like you know uh, uh, the slayer sensation 1992 bringing in uh, these these levels that puts you in the nucleus of a cell mm. and then you have to work your way to all the mitochondria um, and it turns out that the creeper is like a virus taking over the cell so it's some really neat stuff and it's always nice seeing a seeing a series get that kind of acclaim that lets the new kind of imaginative talent come through and bring in some new levels really love that about things like this chris over to you do you remember when we had phone games before touchscreens existed? Uh, Java phone games were almost universally shit. God, yeah. Uh, and the only ones I have any decent memories of were 
a strange clipped port of it might have been Rayman 2 or 3 oh, wow. that transposed the equivalent 3D titles down to just really basic platform games. A surprisingly full featured port of, of Luminaires, but with <laughs> you know MIDI music coming out the speaker of your, your nine-button phone. A game called Poo Rain that had you dodging <laughs> falling excrement for high schools. Classic. And Doom RPG. Oh, wow. Now, Doom RPG was a really cool stage-based first-person dungeon crawler. And, of course, it captured none of the atmosphere or the speed or the feel or or anything, to be honest, of the original. But it was a really great game. And it had a story and it had a decent amount of content for a phone game at the time. You know, it used grid-based movement in first person. It had turn-based battles. It had a range of weaponry and pickups. It had hidden rooms and even some silly but knowing writing that technically makes this game part of the actual Doom canon for anyone that cares about this, <laughs> this series story. But being a Java title, it is almost impossible to play these days. So there is always a possibility that I am massively inflating its quality <laughs> in my head. But at the time, it felt that having something as rounded and gamey as this, developed by the id software, no less at the time, was enough to make Doom RPG feel like a real window into what phone gaming would become when eventually it was able to shake off the shackles of you know, licensed garbage. That company Gameloft put out a Java phone version of basically any property they could for about a five-year stretch. Um, so it was either that or people just playing crazy frog polyphonic ringtones. So it would be a while until obviously the first iPhone would change things forever. But as a kind of um, precursor to all that, Doom RPG is very good. Uh, Doom RPG 2, I think, was meant to be even better, which you might still be able to buy on iPhones, but I, I couldn't say because I, I don't have one. Uh, and I think there was even a Wolfenstein RPG at some point as well, all, all in loosely the same universe. So something there to dig into if you want to play some some odd first-person dungeon-calling RPGs by uh, John Carmack. <laughs> Extraordinary. Shining the Holy Ark, isn't it? But with uh, demons. There we go. <laughs> there we go. So my seventh honourable mention... I can't remember which game from the series I actually uh, I actually thought I would cite as an example of this, but it's basically a Professor Layton. Oh, I love the Professor Layton games. They're a wonderful mix of interactive storytelling and puzzle games, all brought to life with the beautiful Ghibli-inspired anime style of level five. I love the characters from the titular Professor, who was like a slightly bumbling Poirot mixed with a Victorian Sherlock Holmes without the rampant drug addiction. <laughs> His little assistant, Luke, was a proper stereotypical London urchin. Oh, I've got it! Oh, Professor! <laughs> what is it, Luke? Uh, and uh, it was it was just a joy to spend time with these characters. Like, across the series, the story takes all kinds of twists and turns across myth, history and legend, with you stumbling across ancient civilizations, mysterious artefacts. And it was always just brilliantly told and very earnestly presented. But the, the story was just window dressing for what is essentially just... A collection of puzzles. It's it's a puzzle game uh, with a, just a, a mind-boggling array of puzzles that, that, to be fair, frequently stumped me. Also, they made liberal use of the DS's functionalities, later the 3DS, with the touchscreen, the microphone, the gyro, everything being included in many, many different ways. Uh, you know, you have to solve the puzzle. I think that the reason why 
any of the games. I think it was probably the oh, it was it must have been the last one in the series because that was kind of like uh, that I would have I would have put in because that was like the you know a nice sort of culmination of the story. But I think the reason why that one or or any of the games didn't really make it onto my list is is because I I enjoyed the story much much more than I enjoyed the gameplay. Yeah. <laughs> even though like the, the puzzles were fun, I played the games for their story. Like I even watched the to be fair, surprisingly decent full-length animated feature film because I love the characters and I just, you know, wanted to see what they did next. And I found the gameplay, if anything, just stood in my way of watching these lovely films. <laughs> I didn't play the... I know there was a crossover with Phoenix Wright that I never played, uh, but then I never played the Phoenix Wright games. But I have just downloaded the latest game in the series, uh, which has just been added to Apple Arcade, which is the one that follows Professor Layton's daughter. I think that was released on... Well, I know it's been released on the Switch and yeah, on 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 mobile and, and tablets and probably a lot of other things. But yeah, it's just just been added as part of the Apple Arcade library. So I'm uh, yeah, I'm really excited actually to. I was going to say to play it, but just just to just to hopefully hear some 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 nice nice storytelling because it's <laughs> lovely, really lovely. And somewhere I think I've still got it. When I was working at Game, we got some promotional top hats to wear for when uh, the whatever the latest latent game came out and I I think I might still have my my plush latent top hat somewhere. I hope I do. I hope I do. <laughs> Minty. Memo Huntress is next for me. It's a hidden object game and the absolute pinnacle of the genre. It's it's really hard to find now, especially now that um, Flash has been sort of taken out back and shot, but <laughs> I think the only place you could really find it back in the day was on Not Doppler. I haven't looked for it um, since Flash um, uh, went the way of the dodo, but you play as a young lady who and then she falls into a strange world because she's running away from uh, a tragic home life, maybe, and she finds herself in all kinds of strange set pieces, like um, an enchanted forest, a, a hotel, a massive tavern, and you've got to find things like, um, you know, like six hairbrushes, nine tankards, um, forty-two flowers, all that sort of thing. But every single stage is just so incredibly full of life. The depth of field is used to an incredible effect. I couldn't believe it was just a flash game. When I first played it, I'd spend literal hours on every single stage, just, just looking at everything, soaking in the atmosphere. So many little, so many little pockets of activity. Like I know I've only got one candle left to find so I can get to the next stage, but I'm just going to see if I can uh, pretend that I'm going to be sitting with this couple who are laughing and swapping stories over grog and just imagining what they're saying to each other. As you found things, the environment would change as well. So instead of just having a list of loads of mundane shit to find, you get put onto things from people who have uh, who have a need. For example, um, the the diva in room three, uh, she needs um, five um, five hand mirrors so that she can look at herself from every which way. And once you return them, she'll move to the side and reveal one of the one of the three keys that you need to unlock the door to get to the next level it's oh it's a really lovely experience and if it's on um if it's what's it called the flashpoint operation flashpoint yeah yeah if it's on there i I strongly recommend that you should play it at least once take a block out of your diary because you'll need it but yeah absolutely play it that sounds fantastic i've just had a little look at some images of it and does look absolutely gorgeous yeah what's it called i want to see it what's it called memory huntress Memo Huntress. Oh, it's very exotic, isn't it? Mm. I like the Mega Drive game Zombies Ate My Neighbours a lot. 
and it's it's a classic on the platform. It's on the SNES as well, but obviously I, I had a Mega Drive growing up. And it recently got a Switch port along with its spiritual sequel, Ghoul Patrol, oh. uh, which I am looking forward to playing. I've, I've ordered a physical copy from Limited Run. It will be here in 700 years, but when it does <laughs> arrive, it'll be nice to pop that in the console. Uh, it's basically a top-down action game stuffed with references to, to B-movies and Hammer Horror flicks. So you control one of two kids romping about the neighborhood using water pistols, fizzed up cans of Coke, weed whackers, any other makeshift weapons you find to attack zombies and werewolves and mummies and, and triffids and hockey masked chainsaw wielding lumberjacks. And you're just looking around the whole neighborhood to find the neighbors of the title to save this variety of human characters that, that need to be kind of rescued before they have their lives cut short and extinguished by the zombies of the title. And the main reason this didn't make it onto my list is because it's an extremely punishing game. And as a child, I know the first 10 or so levels incredibly well, but the 40 or so that follow are basically total unknowns to me. (laughs) It's just, it's another one of those games though, where especially as a kid, I enjoyed the aesthetic so much that it didn't matter. Like the pixel art is great. The music's fantastic. And at that time to replay that first, you know, 20 minute chunk again and again, was enough to make it a firm favourite. Though in constructing this list a couple of years ago, I felt it would be a little disingenuous to try and talk up a game that I know less than 20% of. <laughs> so uh, similar to your, your Splinter Cell reasoning, it's like, well, the demo was good. <laughs> it's like I've, I've basically played the demo of Zombies on loop for God knows how many years now. You know, Maybe when the Switch version comes, I think it's got save state support in that. I might make a bit more progress. <laughs> but to be honest, I'll just be happy to play those first 10 levels again and again. <laughs> Yeah, so really good game, but I couldn't tell you what it's like in, in uh, you know, not even the back half. We're talking like the back three quarters. <laughs> That's fair enough. That is fair enough. So my next honourable mention is a game that was described to me with one of the best video game synopses I've ever heard. Oh, uh, was... yes. Yes. <laughs> this was uh, back when I was working at Game. My friend in question was my, well, my boss at the time, Dan. And he said, the idea of this game is, you're an octopus, but you don't want your family to find out. (laughs) It's Octodad, Dadliest Catch, uh, which is just an absolutely hilarious game that sees you play as an octopus, masquerading as a human, trying to pass through lots of generic human scenarios without giving away the fact that you are an octopus. The controls are deliberately absurd with you having direct control over four pairs of tentacles, which means it is just incredibly hard to do the most simple of things like make breakfast for your family or tidy up the garden or go to the shops without making just a dreadful, dreadful calamity of yourself. (laughs) It is an incredibly funny game. And whilst it is fun to play on your own, it's much more enjoyable playing with someone watching, like, you know, sharing a funny video you found on YouTube uh, and, and you can bask in it slapstick absurdity of it together and it's it's great it's also got like a surprisingly emotional and touching story at the heart of it which is quite lovely but it is it's a really anarchic game in a way and it's it's very difficult to make a game that is deliberately dreadful to play be fun but it is definitely the best attempt at that i've seen but inherently it's not as fun to play as lots of other games which you know doing these lists i've 
I've come to realize is an, a pretty important factor to me. Uh, just just being being a good game to play, good, good fun. But it, <laughs> but yeah, so it's a it's a strange one because, like I said, if it was easy to control, then it wouldn't be funny. So yeah, it's it's a it's a bit of a paradox game, but I absolutely love it and it is brilliant and it's always fun to think about it. Minty, what's next for you? My penultimate offering is uh, a game called Realm Grinder. Is that like uh, a homosexual dating app for wizards? <laughs> uh, if it is, I hadn't got that far into the game, but I know that they're updating it uh, quite regularly. <laughs> I started playing this game right from its very first release on, on congregate.com. Uh, back in the day, I was balls deep in every single idle game they had going. Like Just something about that very simple hands-off loop of click button, get money, buy thing with that click button for you, sit back for a while, start again in a new game plus with mad bonuses, click button bigger, get more money, buy thing that click button for you even more, sit back for a little longer, start again in new game plus plus, head towards infinity, eyes glazed, serotonin slowly dripping out as you make big numbers go even bigger. Realm Grinder took that loop and added factions. There were three factions on each alignment. And do you align yourself with the good factions who waited towards more active clicking gameplay, availing yourself perhaps of the fairies who empower your much cheaper units and boost their power? Or do you use the power of the angels to elevate your spells? Or do you get deep with the elves and Bend the game over your knee with every single super-powered click. The choice is yours. Or you can go in evil, lean into idle gameplay, sit back and let uh, the undead uh, rack your numbers up slowly. But we're not done yet. If you do well with each faction, you unlock the neutral factions who offer a balance between active and idle. You've got the titans, you've got the, I think you had the druids and the faceless who were like sort of a mix between the mind flayers and Cthulhu. Um, they were, they were, they were slightly spooky. And then you can unlock things like excavations, dig up artifacts that offer huge bonuses and give you clues to unlocking even more factions and new gameplay mechanics. It just, it's relentless. It doesn't stop. And it's one of those games that it does use in-game currency, but you don't mind because you've already sunk in like a couple of hundred hours into this game for absolutely nothing. And it's given you so much enjoyment. Realm Grinder, really, really good game. And available now, I believe, on tablets and such as that. Well, there we go. Grind away. Mm. Chris. My penultimate choice is one that's quite uh, uncharacteristic for my usual play habits, I guess. Ease is an extremely long-running action RPG series, and I have played precisely one Ease game, and that is the very first title in the series that I played via emulation about a month before we started this podcast project. <laughs> sometimes it's just called Ease, sometimes it's called Ease Book One, sometimes it's called Ancient Ease Vanished, but even after beating the game, I have no idea what Ease is, or does, or is supposed to be. <laughs> the game itself, though, it's a super simple RPG. It's got dungeons, towns, little fetch quests, bosses, and, and nicely voiced cutscenes, at least in the PC Engine CD version that I played. And it all revolves around the adventures of a, a red-headed lad called Adol Kristin, who I understand to be a persistent main character in the rest of the series, but I'm not speaking with any authority here. <laughs> like I, I do not know anything about this series other than I played the first game and enjoyed it. It, it uses ultra-straightforward bump combat, so you just walk into an enemy repeatedly and then whoever has the highest health pool triumphs. And for the first 20 minutes or so, this seemed incredibly restrictive and basic compared to even simple action RPGs of the time. 
But very quickly, I came to appreciate the immediacy of that because it's a very truncated take on the RPG format. And I quite enjoyed how clearly signposted it then was when I needed to either grind a bit to level up with easier enemies or change my gear to be more relevant to the enemies I was then fighting. So it kind of, it takes away a lot of the stuff I find tough in RPGs, the kind of endless team and and gear management and just made it like, do you have a higher number than then? Yes, then proceed. And I quite enjoyed that. But the highlight for the whole thing was the soundtrack. And again, I was spoiled a little because I played this on the, the PC Engine CD version as opposed to any of the 8-bit versions that had already come out on things like the Master System or, or the Famicom or home computers at the time. And that meant it had a glorious CD soundtrack. And I would highly recommend digging it out because it's just a super high-energy, really peppy soundtrack to get you in the mood for kind of a good stomping adventure. When I finished it, I had always intended to start the second game in the series quite soon after. And and most releases of the game from that version onwards, from the PC Engine version onwards, conveniently packages both the first two games together. But as is so often the way with me, the person who played the first Metroid game and then just forgot it was a series, uh, the person who played halfway through Ocarina of Time and then just never opened the 3DS for another half a year. Like, I just got distracted by something else. And... It is a genuinely great game, though, and and this is a recommendation coming from adult Chris without one iota of halcyon nostalgia. So I do like it a lot. Maybe one day I'll play more of it. But I think for someone who actually enjoys RPGs more, it could be something that you go, yeah, that's that's a really good example of like you know the early action RPG and and what it would turn into. Whereas for me, I just think, yeah, it was a it was a good time. <laughs> So my penultimate honourable mention is a PC action RPG that me and my brother Alex had. And like with a lot of games around that time, I experienced a a, a lot of it vicariously through him. But I I did have a good stab at, at playing it myself. And unlike Octodad, it was incredibly satisfying to play. The game is called Silver, and I don't think many people really knew about it or played it. I think it came out on the Dreamcast as well as the PC. I've played it on the Mm. Dreamcast. Now, I'd be really interested to see, or to hear, and, well, play, experience, how it controlled on the console, because it had a very, just a really interesting control scheme on the PC. And it's it's a control scheme that I I haven't really seen replicated, because you basically control your sword swings with the mouse almost almost a little bit like you have direct control over your sword and skyward sword but the way it would work is i think you hold down the left mouse button to take control of your sword and then you move the mouse in any direction you want to swing your sword in that direction and because there's this like fixed sort of almost uh, i guess sort of overheads isometric camera you could very deftly defeat lots of enemies as they surrounded you and that control scheme coupled with to be honest some of the best and most gloriously gory sound effects i've ever heard made it so so fun to play every single slash would send chunks of meat and spurts of blood and entrails flying and come splashing and slopping onto the floor it was just very (laughs) very satisfying indeed the story itself was was also really really great it was a sort of you know i mean it's fairly sort of typical swords and shields fantasy uh, but it had very earnest voice acting and really epic music and i i love something that's just earnest i love something that's unashamedly just believes in it itself and it really really sold me on that on the surface it looks like 
any other sort of RPG of that time, and it's certainly a fantasy RPG or an action RPG like Baldur's Gate or Final Fantasy. But it was just, yeah, it was, it had, it had, it really felt like it had a lot of lore, and I'm sure it did, but like with some of these other games, the reason it didn't make it onto my list is because of the limited playtime I had personally with it, and the fact that whilst I, you know, I got a huge amount of enjoyment out of the game, it wasn't something that was a, I guess, like a very direct personal experience. Like, I don't know how much of the game I played, or whether there's parts of the games that I remember because I saw Alex play it, or because I played it. Again, it's a game that I would love to revisit. I'd love to see it get like an HD remaster. I mean, a lot of games from that sort of era have had that treatment recently, like Baldur's Gate, Neverwinter Nights, Heroes, uh, Age of Empires, stuff like that. So maybe, maybe somebody will pick it up, or I'd, uh, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to see how it handles on a console because I think that would change. It would change the way the game felt. Very, yeah, especially with the combat. I think that was a, yeah, it's like I say, it was a very, very satisfying way to control it and something that I haven't seen done ever again. But there we go. Silver. Top stuff. Well, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Minty, your final honourable mention. What have you saved? What have you saved to last? Okay, I've saved a fan-built text-based multi-user dungeon based on the works of one of the UK's greatest writers. Initially, when, uh, when, I, when I first got told to play it, it, I thought it sounded like utter shite. <laughs> it sounded like a huge nuisance, a whole bunch of work with zero payoff and no kind of stimulating gameplay. I did hold on to this opinion for about a month, but... Oh boy, fellas. Peer pressure's a powerful thing, isn't it? <laughs> All my friends were playing... One guy calculated that he'd spent a good 0.5% of his life playing it. It, t- it took me just a little while for it to click, but when it did, good lord, it was amazing. The good thing about the Discworld MUD is you're not just you're not just picking a character from the books to play at. You're not picking you're not getting to the character creation screen you think oh i'm going to be sam vimes or i'm going to be granny weatherwax oh i'm going to be monster and ridcully that sort of thing you're just picking a generic character who then gets plonked into Discworld with no affiliation no relatives that sort of thing it's just, it's just an online multiplayer game but it's completely text-based and it's got things like um uh, guilds, all the set pieces from the books that you can go and visit. Uh, all the characters are there, and they'll be giving off their little lines, or maybe some would even give some quests. The main, the main draw of the game was uh, the guilds that you could join. You could become things like uh, warriors, assassins, wizards, priests, witches, all those sort of generic uh, fantasy classes. But then they also had different Discworldy flavors. You could become, if you wanted to be a warrior, you could join the Ankhmore Pork City Watch. Or you could head up to the Lanka Highlands and become a hublandish barbarian, that sort of thing. You could become an assassin, join one of the four great houses, and do the initiation tests, which uh, the main character in Pyramids does, um, which was a really uh, a really fun thing to read after becoming aware of it in the game. So I never read any of the books um, prior to playing the game, but as soon as I started playing this game and really getting into it i just hoovered them up absolutely hoovered them up so it was a nice balance between oh i'm starting to get better at the game i'm starting to explore all these different places 
and then oh now i'm reading the books and oh i've been there oh i know where that is all that sort of thing there were some really lovely set pieces like um in moving pictures the the setting is uh, is is hollywood um a sort of a pastiche of hollywood and it's all about um making movies and all the rest of it but you can go up there in the game you can go to the cutting room and fix up uh like a i guess what would you call it a some film like a, a disc of film and that will give you some quest points and every quest that you complete gives you a little collectible card of all the creators who code the game oh. and so you can have a little look at them and say oh it's this is i got this for beating this quest it's a lovely gold card with a picture of i don't know pink fish on it and whichever way you turn it it is always looking at you which is a nice way of uh, bringing the team of creators and coders sort of into the community a little more which was really nice and there are also loads and loads of characters from the books in there there's back in the day you could um you could go to the warriors guild and you'd see cohen the barbarian there uh, lisping away talking about good dentistry hot water and soft toilet paper <laughs> if you died death would be there speaking in all capitals before buggering off realizing that you've got another six lives before your permadeath it's just it's built by people who well built written by people who just really love the books you really get a sense that they just absolutely love them and they've made a game in in the style of Pratchett's writing full of his humor and full of his heart there really is nothing else like it so if any of you are listening the creators or the team of um people who made the discord mud thank you very much for giving me not only a fantastic and um, equitable game i guess to play with friends like the the the, the gmod client i used was free i didn't need to buy a console or anything for it i was just able to load it up and play with my friends until the until the early hours so thank you very much not only for giving me a good multiplayer experience but also a love for the works of terry pratchett wonderful I remember you talking about that game when we did our Chris and Minty Adventure Month, mm. when Jonathan took his paternity leave. Yeah, ah. and I think I, I didn't research it enough after that to really see how how deep it goes. Yeah, and it's only now when you were talking, I've, I've looked up a few kind of stats and facts and things like that. There's some of the administrators have been playing this game since 1991. Yes, yes, we're, we're talking just an insane amount of time. And, and I know these kind of experiences can just obviously spiral out to the point where they are totally changed things from what they might have been at the beginning. But there is so much in this. What what a world to be part of, to mm. have the time when you were a little bit younger to really get immersed in something as, as far reaching as this would have been incredible. Yeah, I really, really loved it. It's a real time sink. So I've, I've just sort of fallen off um, in recent years. I have been back every now and then, but... That good chunk of a few years back when I was a teenager, that was whew, honestly nothing like it. Superb. When's it going to get a uh, box release for Chris to collect? <laughs> <laughs> if you like, I can. <laughs> I can make you one. Not interested, otherwise. Not interested. <laughs> <laughs> box or nothing, mate. Hmm? Chris, over to you. What is your final honourable mention? My final honourable mention is, I think, the best of the bunch out of mine. I feel and. And a genuine hidden gem, I think, that would have passed most people by. It's a platform game called Cloudberry Kingdom. And the main problem with this game is that outside of its strange name, it has no real personality. 
And I think that's why no one played it when it came out. But it doesn't really matter because as soon as you start playing it, you realize it's a game that really prioritizes mechanics over aesthetics. It launched on the 360, it was on the PS3, it was on the PC. And yet, frustratingly, it's been delisted on every storefront for some reason these days. So, you know, there are ways to get hold of it, I'll <laughs> say. But as is so often the case, all all the ways to do that are quite grey in their <laughs> legitimacy. But the game, though, its, it's central conceit is that stages are generated on the fly by an algorithm that's able to produce fast-paced platform snapshots, I guess. And it's, it's almost like a super simplified Spelunky. And that setup ensures that then no two players are going to experience the, the exact same layout. Because in that split second as the stage is loading, it will plonk down platforms to you know invite you to make strategic, skillful leaps. It will put in enemies and obstacles to hinder your progress. It will put in collectibles that kind of shepherd you along an optimum route through the level. And every stage is quick. Uh, and it's generally set up in a way that invites you to really hit the ground running, just moving at all times, really. And what I always enjoyed was how the stage generation seems really well balanced to let you straddle kind of finesse and survival. So it encourages that sort of madcap sense of quickly taking stock and then just flying by the seat of your pants as you try and James Bond <laughs> your way through it. And, and I think that element is what is in all the best Twitch platformers. The, the kind of idea that it's like you have complete control over your character. So you, if you see the obstacles and you understand kind of the pattern of it, you can just blast through it. It gets really fucking hard as the level level count increases, but it also has this great feature that lets you see a computer-controlled hologram version of your character perfectly speedrun whatever's been thrown up, almost just to show you that it is possible to succeed. And I, I think the difficulty of the later stages is what put me off including this higher on the list, to be honest, because as we all know, I'm pretty <laughs> shit at games, but I've always really admired how Cloudberry Kingdom felt like almost an artistic review or homage or reflection on just 2D platformers as a genre. And in a weird way, would explore kind of the roots of the genre as well as just its logical nightmarish abstraction and evolution. So it's, it's kind of like a platform of the game, a sort of documentary come conceptual breakdown of the genre. And, and it feels like when you first boot it up, early stages are really simplistic, almost like Super Mario Brothers style. And then by the time you're kind of an hour into a run, you're up to real punishing stages like super meat boy or all the impossible game sort of thing oh, yeah where one wrong move is is just death and, and you're gonna have to try again but i, I think it's a really a really good one uh, and yeah if i was better <laughs> if i'd actually got like some way through it maybe it would have been one that i thought yeah yeah i'll, I'll, put, I'll put that in there somewhere to recommend but yeah I'd, i probably never made enough progress to really honestly be able to say i've seen loads of it and i think it's i think it's worth playing but in concept <laughs> top stuff so, I have decided to bookend my honourable mentions with Pokemon games, and my final honourable mention is a real ignored, or at least forgotten, game in the series, and it's the Game Boy Colours Pokemon trading card game. Oh, <laughs> It is a fantastic Pokemon RPG, but the battling is all played through the mechanics of the Pokemon trading card game. Now, I deliberately never bought a single Pokemon trading card because I knew, even at a very young age, that that was going to be a very dangerous hobby for me to get into. I used to love collecting football stickers. I did that avidly every year for, yeah, because I think my first football album was 1994 and I did that probably up until, I don't know, the end of the 90s. And I love the Pokemon games so, so much. I knew if I started collecting Pokemon cards, I'd be doing that 
for the rest of my life and spending all my money on them forever. <laughs> and the funny thing is, for all the billions of people collecting the cards, probably less than 1% of those people ever actually played the game that it was. You know, people just wanted to collect the cards, trade them, and that was the game. And that's absolutely fine. But the card battling mechanics in the Game Boy Color game showed that there is a really good game in there. And it's probably the first card-based deck building game game that I ever really got my head around and I really enjoyed curating my collection of cards making sure to get the balance right between the elemental cards and the other types of cards to make sure I could battle effectively and I played the game from beginning to end and had a marvellous time. I think it deserves a lot more praise and recognition than it's ever had and I'm also surprised that we haven't seen more of the video games capitalising on the popularity of the cards like, imagine if the cards were, like, Amiibo cards, and you could buy them and scan them into the game. Like, if Nintendo released a new trading card video game for free that you could use real cards in, they would make more money than they need, and also make a game that I wouldn't allow myself to play or enjoy. <laughs> I know that there is, there is like, an online trading card game type thing, which I, I deliberately haven't looked at. <laughs> I haven't even gone to the website to look at it because I know how susceptible I am to those types of things. And I just, I can't, well, literally can't afford to be, you know, sort of pulled in by it. So it's, it's possible that like some of those elements are incorporated into that. But yeah, it it looks like it would be just a real black hole for my soul, <laughs> probably. But yeah, the Game Boy Color game was brilliant. But... Sadly, it's been eclipsed by the mainline games for me uh, and therefore didn't make it onto my list. But I've never forgotten it. And uh, it's always a joy to, to think about it and, uh, and, and to, to talk to the few people that I think did actually uh, did play it and engage with it. Because um, certainly back in the day, it wasn't like we had a billion different Pokemon games to choose from. You know, we had Pokemon Red, Blue, Yellow. Pokemon Gold and Silver and Pokemon Trading Card Game. That was the only po I mean, still, that so it still seems like quite a lot to choose from. But it was a really nice side exploration of the you know the core Pokemon concept and um, just a yeah another brilliantly made RPG from Game Freak. Absolutely superb. Good boys and good girls. So there we have it. Those are the games that almost made it onto our lists. 30 excellent games nonetheless, and it's always lovely to have an opportunity to talk about games that we love, even ones we, we love uh, less than others. <laughs> so what a treat we have in store for you. We are mere footsteps away from the summit of our top hundreds, and we have decided to put together a whopping epic finale for you. We are making arrangements to meet together in person to record our final entries together, which is going to be just a very special moment indeed. Because it's going to be such a beefy episode, we will need an extra bit of time to put it together so we have prepared something else to tide you over in the meantime now you lovely listeners have been sending in your top 10 games lists throughout this whole season and we've picked our top 10 top 10 lists which we are going to review in the next episode which is going to be a lot of fun there are so many different games featured on those lists and it's so great to see love for so many games that have appeared on our lists but also so many games that haven't that we haven't played or haven't even heard of it's going to be a, a great celebration of our gratitude uh, for you listeners accompanying us 
on our journey all the way through our top 100 lists and we hope that you really enjoy hearing our thoughts on your thoughts <laughs> if you have enjoyed this episode or any of our episodes please do share the podcast on your social media platforms reach out to us on ours you can find all of our accounts in our link tree which is linktr.ee slash o3c podcast facebook instagram twitch youtube tiktok watch listen and look at all our additional content there and you can reach out to us specifically if you find us on twitter i am at jonathan dunn i am forever and always at Chaz underscore hodges and i'm clement underscore boo and if you're really enjoying what we're doing want to support us even more than by just listening to the episode and sharing it to your friends and if you want to be at the forefront of the future of the project then do please head over to patreon.com slash our three cents have a look at the perks on offer in exchange for some pecuniary support and we will see you next week for your three cents (laughs) and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor Hi, I'm Ray, and this is my friend Alex. Hi. And we do a show called No More Whoppers. Do you want pins and stickers? Because we don't have them. Like a broken keyboard, we're out of control. Check it out. You got Wah 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 Poet Hojo. How about a No More Whoa? Join us every month or so on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Fans of video games, history, or video game history will definitely want to listen to Retronauts. Each week, Bob Mackey and myself, that's Jeremy Parrish, dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today. Check us out every Monday on the Greenlit Podcast Network.